The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we praise your name for the truth that Jesus lives brought out of the grave by omnipotence, raised up triumphant. He is seated and he reigns and he is coming. And we bless your name for that and say thank you. And I pray now that you would dwell in our midst here in power this morning to help us to comprehend some of the glorious reality for this life right now that is ours because he lives, because he has triumphed, and because he reigns. Lord, I echo what was prayed earlier, asking you to give us minds that understand your affection for us, your love and concern and compassion and mercy and gracious, kind disposition, your affection for us, your people. Help us to see it. Help us to see it in the passage today. Help us to walk in it because we are meant to walk in this life not only not only looking for the great day of your coming when we will be raised up, but to walk as those who have life now even. Eternal life has begun. It is already here, not yet in fullness, but already here. Meet your people now here today and help us to walk in the light, released, free, in glory, rejoicing, even while we walk sorrowing still. Need your help with that, Lord, so please come. Please come and control your church. Control your people and move us towards you. Open the scriptures today, helping them be clear to us. Give me words to say that are right and helpful. Give us ears to hear them. Move your people. Build them up. Draw others in who are not yours yet, but, but would be so blessed to know you. Draw them in, Lord. Spirit of God, would you have us, would you have this church, would you unite it more tightly to Christ, honor his name, and it is in that great name we pray, amen. We turn our attention this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 24, the last chapter of 2 Samuel. I'll preach one more sermon on on all of this material next week to try to kind of give some great big summary to it. But this here this morning is the end of the book, and it is a masterful ending. For several weeks now, we've been working through the summary section of this book, chapters 21 through 24. We've noticed that they have a particular shape to them. They are a collection of events and poetry that it's not gathered together and arranged chronologically. It's, It's shaped to give a particular impression 
to underline for us, to remind us of, to point out for us how it is that David is the answer to the question. The question raised by the issues of Judges and, and early on in Samuel, the question raised by, by humanity, our need for a ruler over us, a king. How is it that David, what is it about David that is the answer to that question? I've seen that underlined and emphasized these last several chapters. They're, ra- they're arranged kind of like a pyramid, and at the, at the pinnacle there is the, is the poetry in Chapter 22, in the beginning of 23, David is the king God promised and faithfully kept his word to protect from all attack and to raise up onto a throne over all the nations. David, well, really, one in the line of David, a ruler coming, remember this, the one coming who would, like a son, rise over all the people and cause them like grass to flourish, to sprout up and prosper, even while he roots out and destroys all the thorns. That's the kind of ruler that we need. That's the pinnacle. If you step away one step in either direction, backwards into uh, 21 or forwards into 23, what do we find there? We looked at this last week. David is a king who raises up warriors like him, after him, moved by him, inspired by him, empowered to fight for David's kingdom, to impress David's values onto the people, a God-centeredness that is blessing to us. Warriors, and we found in that last week as we looked at this, a, a purpose and a privilege for us, a, a purpose to be servants of his, co-laborers with him, and a great privilege that it is to be co-laborers with him. That's stepping one step away. And if you go another step away, back to the beginning in 21, and then today's passage in 24, you find similar yet different stories. The wrath of God on the people removed only when David offers proper sacrifice. We need a king who will shine on and bless and prosper. We need a king who will raise up warriors like him to defend. And we need a king who will sacrifice to remove the wrath of God. We saw that in the the difficult story of the Gibeonites in 21, and we'll see it again this morning in 24. This is the final note of the book. David offers right sacrifice and the wrath of God is turned away. That's something to consider. And we'll do that, but first let me read it. 2 Samuel 24, I'm going to read all of it, verses 1 through 25. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army, So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Eror and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites. And they came to Dan and from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And then they went out to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. 
So, when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days, and Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And then David arose in the morning. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land, or will you flee three months before your foes? Will they pursue you? Or shall there be three days' pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of men. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now, stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arona the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arona the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Arona looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arona went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arona said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you, in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arona said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and the threshing sledges, and the yokes of the oxen for wood. All this, O king, Arona gives to the king. And Arona said to the king, The Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arona, No, no, I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings so the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. The word of the Lord. Verse 1 begins with, again, 
the anger the Lord was kindled against Israel. Perhaps the again is pointing us all the way back to the book of Judges, where that language of the anger of the Lord being kindled is used from time to time. So perhaps it's meant here to remind us of this is the problem. From way back, same problem. Watch this solution. Perhaps it's doing that, or perhaps it's just pointing us back to 21 to make the connection between these two chapters obvious. Whatever's going on exactly, we know the anger of the Lord is kindled against Israel, and that's important to note here at the start. Israel's sin is the problem. Israel's sin is what has caused the anger of the Lord to be kindled, and so he's going to judge and discipline them, and to do so, the Lord will use David's sin, as we'll see. But it starts with Israel. It's important to note here. Now, before we move on, let me say a word about the First Chronicles passage that parallels this. You might know it's, this story is told in First Chronicles also. And in that story, there are many details that are different. There are many additional details, and we're not going to touch on any of them. Our job here, there are lots of plenty of explanations for what's going on in First Chronicles, but our job here is to understand Samuel, the text of Samuel that's given to us. And so we might note, for example, that Satan is involved in the First Chronicles account, and he's just skipped here. The writer of Samuel is, is not concerned to talk about how it is exactly that God worked all this out. He just goes right to the end and says, we know, of course, that everything exists under God's domain. There is nothing that exists out from under him. And so in the very end, in the final analysis, we can say that God is involved in doing this. How exactly does he incite David? It doesn't say. We can guess providentially. He uses other people, other influences to make David think about something. That's how God works. He works through sin even. We've seen that a bunch of times already. You've got to keep the R in through. Not He works even though there is sin. He works even through sin for which people are responsible. As David and Joab both know full well in this passage. So Israel has sinned in some way here. And God is going to discipline them, judge them, and he's going to use David in that process. And and he moves him somehow or another to number the people, which we don't know exactly why that's wrong, but it is wrong. Joab knows it's wrong. Verse 3, why, king, why? And down in verse 10, David realizes when his heart strikes him, I have sinned, I have done wickedly, I have done foolishly. Ah, he knows he shouldn't have. Please take it away from me. Now, David doesn't know what we know. He doesn't know this is really about the sin of the people. He just, he just thinks it's all about him and that God is determined to, to strike the people. He doesn't know that. He's just focused on himself. So he hears from Gad the judgment that's going to come against him, and Gad lays out these options. And as he considers them all, as they're going to fall on him and fall on the people, famine or flight from foes or plague, pestilence for three days, David's answer is a remarkable one of throwing himself right back on the one who's pronouncing a judgment on him. Verse 14. This is the one who's, who's speaking to him the punishment and he throws himself right back on him. I am in great distress. I don't want to fall into the hands of men. They don't have mercy in them. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord. 
who is great in mercy. And so plague falls on Israel suddenly from one end of the land to the other, from Dan to Beersheba, and 70,000 men die. God's wrath on the people all across the land. But when the angel of the Lord moves to strike Jerusalem, God relents, pauses him there. It's almost as if the, the hand of the angel is raised above the city and God says, oh, stop, 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 enough. And the hand is held there right at this particular spot on the threshing floor of, of this Aruna, which is probably a title rather than a name. He's introduced to us, and in, in Hebrew actually calls him the Aruna. Here's a Jebusite. He's not an Israelite. And he owns this little piece of land in Jerusalem. But he's a subject of David now. And David comes to him, and, and he wants to give him everything. The land, the oxen, the wood. He wants to give it all to him to sacrifice. David had earlier said to him, to the Lord, this, this should not fall on the sheep. It should fall on me. And the Lord set him up at this particular place to offer sacrifice. And here he has laid right in front of him a cheap, easy sacrifice. And he says, no, I will only offer a sacrifice that costs me. And he buys the stuff that he needs and offers up the sacrifice he paid for it all, offered burnt offerings as atonement and peace offerings that always follow to signify now there is a union again between God and man. And the Lord, just like he did at the end of 21, sees the sacrifice, hears the plea, and removes the plague. The end. That's the end of the book. A stunning end. The anger of the Lord begins, kindled against Israel, and it ends with the king offering sacrifice that the Lord hears and removes the punishment, or moves the wrath. An amazing end of this book. I'm going to make two observations about this, and I think, the, I think this is awesome. People of God, there is something here that is awesome. So may you see it. I'm going to make two observations. Here's the first one. God is great in mercy even while we are Great sinners. God is great in mercy even while we are great sinners. We are great sinners, and he is great in mercy. The passage begins with sin. It doesn't clarify exactly what it is that Israel did, but it's about sin. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. God himself tells us in his word that he is slow to anger. Slow. We've gotten to the end of that, and the anger is kindled like a fire lit and burning. Consider that. This is the Almighty, the Lord. The Lord who reigns over 
all, every single little piece of land, every single little person knows every single little thought, and he sees it, and finally here in Israel is moved to anger, and it is burning like a fire. And when it breaks out, 70,000 men die suddenly. In a scene reminiscent of the plagues of Egypt, the angel of the Lord rises up and strikes down the land. His wrath is stirred by the sins of the people and by the sins of David also. He's moved against David without knowing again for certain what it is that he did. David knows that he has sinned and sinned terribly. He calls it Great, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. It is iniquity. I have done very foolishly. Later he calls it wickedness that he's done. Verse 17. He fully expects the Lord to be angered by it and against it and to move against him. And so he, he understands when the prophet announces a pending affliction. He knows full well the Lord hates sin and is angered by it and moved to punish it and oppose it. David knows this and we must too. There is no soft spot in God in regards to sin. There is no, that's okay, I don't mind that one. No. The New Testament also is full, full of commandments and exhortations and statements and paragraphs against sin and calling us away from it, calling us to holiness and warning us about All over the place, the people of Israel here, even David, his chosen beloved son, God is moved and passionately against sin, which is a very good thing because sin is terrible. Sin is terrible. It is this passion in God against sin which gloriously is going to move him to wipe it out of the earth one day. It's a great thing that he is against sin greatly. And... Thank God that while He is greatly angered by our sin, by humanity's sin, He is also great in mercy. David says that in verse 14, even in the middle of choosing his own punishment. You are the one that is angered by this sin kindled in wrath and you are the one whose hands I want to fall into because you are the only one who's merciful. He says that and then he sees it. Indeed, the angel of the Lord struck the land and struck down 70,000 men. A, A stern, hard thing for sure. But when the angel struck Egypt, it destroyed the place and killed eventually the firstborn in every home. Far worse than this. There's mercy even in it being just 70,000. And the hand of the, the hands of the angel is stayed by God's mercies. It's about to strike Jerusalem, the central city. No, he holds it back. And at the end of the passage, at the very end, the plague is averted from Israel. It's removed. There's mercy throughout this passage. Seen and stated. God is great in mercy even while we are great sinners. Now, there is something very serious for us to deal with here. 
something we need to be extremely clear about, extremely serious about, controlled by, deeply gripped by, such that it, that it holds us and we are fixed on it and can't get away from it, that it controls how you think about life and how you walk through this life and how you relate to God. Something very important. So, so mark it. Get, get out your pencil or your pen or click back your cursor, whatever it is you do, and mark, underline, star it. Star what? Where'd your pencil move? Maybe literally or mentally. Where were you clicking back to? What were you about to mark or star underline? Our great sin? God's great burning anger against our sin? Or God's great mercy? Which one were you going to underline? We need to focus. Initially, we need to focus on sin, its awfulness, and God's hatred of it. Initially, hear me and see me. Initially, but not finally. You need to use the truth of your sin and God's opposition to it. Use it to highlight, to underline, to star, to mark so that you can't ever miss and can't ever forget and can't ever overlook and can never take for granted the great, magnificent mercy of God. I'm, I'm trying to create some, some kind of odd conceptual tension here by how I'm presenting this because I want to be serious about something that is glorious, but I want to be serious about it because this is critically important in life. We must see the great mercy of God poured out in a place where only wrath should live, but doesn't. He is great, great in mercy. We must be extremely clear about that and never take it lightly and never assume it. It is glorious. He is glorious. People of God, do you see the breadth, depth, height, awesome fullness of mercy? Our great sinfulness and God's anger against it must be comprehended in order for that truth of sin to serve its purpose as a vehicle that carries us on to a place from which we can see glory. Did you follow that? Sin and wrath is a vehicle that must be comprehended to carry us on to a place where it will deposit us from which we can see glory, the glory of the mercy of God. If you do not comprehend sin and wrath, if there is not great sin and great wrath, then there is not great mercy. Just a little bit. 
Maybe even just assume because, hey, he should be good to me. I'm not that bad of a guy. No. Great sin and great wrath carries you on till you see something amazing. Amazing. Many people live in the place, unfortunately, of, I'm not that bad of a guy. We do not regard our sin like David did, struck in the heart by it. And really, we spend more of our time, Christians do this too, people in the world do this, more focusing on our own suffering and other people's sin. David does not speak of that. And we would never use his language about our great sin or our wickedness or our folly. May God open your eyes to your sin and his anger, his wrath towards it. Very often history shows, even personal experience shows, that very often that right there is the beginning of fabulous personal revival when you first see sin in me and God's hand on it. That's the beginning. May God open your eyes to that so that you can then travel on to a place of seeing great mercy. Others of us fall down right there. We don't travel. Some of us are are convinced, at least at times in regards to certain things, convinced in our hearts that we are sinners and God's word to you Brother and sister, God's word to you in that moment as his weight rests on you is, look, behold my anger, my wrath removed. No, I mean removed. No, really, I mean removed. Off of you. And then, oh my God, give you guys to see that, beholding that kindness, that is what leads you to repentance. Is that not how the Bible teaches this? Think of Romans 2. It is his kindness that leads to repentance. We must repent. We must never let sin go and, and be okay with it. God wants it out of us. Don't disregard it completely. But do not attempt to stop your sin by some greater work of self-control or some maybe some self-inflicted pain. Rather, you look at your sin, may God give you eyes, you see it as great, and then you must, may God open your eyes, you must see mercy removing wrath off of you. That's what mercy is, something that should be taken away. Wrath removed. A vast well, an ocean of mercy poured out on his kindled wrath so as to extinguish it. Christian, this is true of you. Really. Believe that and marvel at it and glory at it and worship it. Worship Him for it. He is that right now for you and will be that tomorrow for you. 
even while you are a great sinner. He is great, greater than all of your sin, great in mercy over you, forgiving, forgiving. This is deadly serious. Trying to create that tension in you. This is deadly serious because it is everything about how you will walk with him. Will you walk released? For the sake of breaking the, the tension, here, let me smile and say, released. Because there should be great joy in this, but, but I'm trying to drive home a serious point here because we don't think like this. We tend to either think sin's no big deal and I'm not that bad of a guy, or I am wicked. You are a great sinner and he is more awesome than you know. Full of mercy, full of mercy, full of mercy. Great is his faithfulness to you. As that washes over you by the Spirit of God taking that and washing it over you, it'll overwhelm you and you will see, I have been forgiven much. And then you will understand what Jesus said about, you know, the one who's been forgiven much loves much. Do you realize how much you have been forgiven? Let that woo you into his presence and may God move on you to show you a Savior who loves you passionately and has removed off of you vast amounts of evil and has nothing but a smile and blessing and a sun to shine on you and prosper you and cause you to sprout up and flourish. That is your Savior. That is your King over you. You have been forgiven much and there is therefore now no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus, which is what's going to carry us to the second observation in a moment. But you have to see this, Christian. This is the stuff, this is these, these two things, it is the stuff that personal and even corporate, when it's multiplied out in many people, renewal and revival is made of. A great awareness of, I have a problem, and then a greater awareness of, he gloriously dealt with it and has released me from it. Awesome, awesome is he. If you don't find yourself sitting there thinking, I love much, awesome is he, then let me commend that you examine one or the other. Perhaps you don't realize the depth of your sin, but if you're a Christian, it's possibly more likely that you don't realize the depth of his forgiveness. I don't know which one it is for you. Both are critical. They both go together. But mercy is greater. Christian, God is great in mercy towards you, though you are a great sinner.
There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, which takes us to the second point. This second observation is going to be shorter, but really it's the focal point of the passage and one of the main takeaways of the book. The mercy of God is mediated through a self-sacrificing king. The mercy of God is mediated through a self-sacrificing king. God in mercy, we see here, suspends the angel's sword hanging over the city, if you will, stops him at this particular place, this threshing floor, but that's not the end of the matter. The next verse is not verse 25, and he removed the plague. It's just a pause. Something has to happen. The Lord brings the angel, and in some ways, verse 17 tells it, David sees this angel striking the people and is himself struck by and has compassion on the sheep here, harassed and helpless and struck down. Now, David, of course, doesn't understand everything. He thinks it's all about him. But he sees them and has compassion on them and says, Lord, let the blow fall on me and on my house, on my father's line. And God says, let me tell you what you need to do. Go build an altar. Make a sacrifice. And I'll pour out my wrath there. That has to happen. David cannot say, let me make a counterproposal. How about if you just forget the whole thing? There is mercy in God that is great, and he just told David how he's going to pour it out. Build an altar, make a sacrifice, and David knows enough to know it has to cost me. I'm going to buy this. It's going to come out of my pocket. It's not going to come out of his flesh. It's going to come out of his pocket. Pays for the sacrifice. It's offered up, the burnt offering, and then the peace offering. And then it's removed. The plague is removed. Now, it's very important that we realize here because it is, it is common today and especially common in the world today to, to think we so much desire mercy. And you were just talking about how great in mercy God is. It's common for people to think that God is forgiving and merciful in any time and in any way that I want, over anything that I want, however I want it, which is really all about I. I become the one who decides when God will be merciful, and that's not the way it works. This is presumption, and it's incorrect. God's great mercy comes down one single specific path. It flows down one narrow channel, is poured out from one laver, from one bucket, one ladle, if you will. This king's sacrifice alone is what finalizes God's mercy and, and causes him to say, I remove the plague, the wrath, completely. 
Without the sacrifice, the sword falls on the city. God is just, and he has to have a place to put his wrath. So he puts it into the death of the animal. Animals. Without a sacrifice, that doesn't work. But David was there. God raised up this king, brought him forward, and mediated mercy through him. Now, why is this story last? If we allow ourselves one glance at Chronicles, like I said we wouldn't do, we know from Chronicles it happened very early in David's reign. Why, oh why, did the writer of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel wait until the very, 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 very end to tell us this story? It's 40 years late. 35 years late. Because he wants to leave us with an extremely clear, unforgettable impression, this is the kind of king we need. This is the answer. We need a king who will self-sacrifice so as to pull off of the people crushing wrath, deadly wrath. That's the kind of king we need. That's why David is the one we want. Maybe not quite David, because we also know the rest of the story, don't we? It's not exactly David, but we need a guy like that who will do that very thing and will remove the wrath off of the people of God by sacrifice. When will that king come? Gee, I wonder where this is going. Now, now when I say that, you should not be thinking what we're engaged in here is, is some sort of an, of an intellectual chess match here to move all the pieces around so we can get to Jesus. This is supposed to be constantly, all of the Bible, constantly pointing your eyes and therefore your heart onto Jesus. Not so that you intellectually get it and can figure it all out. You need to do that first. So that you worship Jesus. There is a God of great mercy, thank God, who comes in mercy to you, to the world, only in Jesus. And if there is no Jesus, if there is no sacrifice, there is no mercy. Bless God that in grace He sent His King to die that He might pour out mercy on you. And then beyond that mercy, removing the wrath, He pours out on you a shining sun that causes you to prosper and to flourish and to know life. That is all a gift from God in Christ. Bless His holy, gracious, and merciful name. Christian. Glory. You can't miss it. The one that God will send because he wants to remove his wrath. He wants to. He's going to send one who will do it. God the Son come in flesh. This king has come and died and risen and he reigns. And you are at peace with God because of it. What a generous God. He wants to be merciful, but he needs a place to pour his wrath. And God the Son said, let the blow fall on me. These sheep, 
harassed and helpless without a shepherd, I will be the shepherd. I will take the blow. Pour it out on me and show them mercy. And he did that for you. The king you need. In Christ, you have been forgiven much. Love Him much. And glance at yourself and say, oh, I, do, I, do not, I do not love Him much. And pray, Oh God, by Your Spirit, will You show me the breadth of my sin and the greater breadth and height and depth of Your mercy and Your gracious love for me to provide a mediator of mercy. Show that to me in a way that grips me that my heart will be wooed and won to You. Those are the facts. And God, by the Spirit, must come and cause them to, to grip them and then to thrust them into your heart and cause them to sprout and grow and run over you and overtake you. You will be a lover of this God who is so very, very good to you. So very, very gracious to you. You need a king like this. He gave Him. You have Him. Not by anything you have done, but because of His great mercy. You are supremely fortunate. Deeply and passionately loved. Eternally secured. Everlastingly blessed. Christian, love Him then with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. Chase after Him for your joy, for His honor and glory, for your great good. Let me pray. Father, if we comprehend some of what you have done for us, all we can say in response is thank you. You give us so much. I pray, Lord, that you would cause your people here to have strength in their minds to know, strength to know how deeply you love them, how wide your love is, how long and high your love is for them. Paul prayed that at the end of Ephesians 3, and I pray that you would cause this extremely serious, extremely gripping truth of your mercy and love for us to have its way in our hearts and stir us to jubilant giddiness even. God help us. God help your people. Fall on us, Spirit of God, in a way that moves us. Moves us in our hearts. Use the truth implanted deeply in us and bring life, please. 
We look to you for, for this. You, you must move. You must do it. We look to you for it and ask you for it. Plead for it. Have your way with your people. Have your way with me. Thank you, Father, for being good to send us a son, your one and only. Thank you, Jesus, for coming in submission to the Father and in love for the sheep to sacrifice. And thank you, Spirit, for illumining this sacrificing, forgiving, atoning Jesus, opening our eyes to him. Do that work even more right now, I pray. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.